Uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 6 today, so uh, if you have a Bible or an app, uh, pull up Ephesians chapter 6. If you need a Bible, there's some on the table back here. If you're new to the Scriptures, Ephesians is toward the end. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church um, at a city called Ephesus. Um, and as you turn there, uh, we're a small enough crowd, we can have a little conversation today. Um, what was your first job you ever had? A couple of you. What was your first job you ever had? Old Navy. Old Navy? Babysitting? Waiter. Paper route, camp counselor. All right, and, and most of us have had some sort of jobs. So we could answer this question. My first job, I grew up on a farm, a uh, small farm, 14 acres, not like a Texas-sized ranch, but I grew up on a farm. And so my first job that I remember was driving a tractor um, when I was in middle school while high school-age boys threw hay bales on the trailer that I was pulling behind the tractor. So, so my job was to drive, and the other guy's job was to throw hay bales. And, and I remember all I wanted to do as like a young middle school, maybe even like intermediate school, that was a thing we used to have. I don't think we have those anymore. But like even in fifth or sixth grade, all I wanted to do was to be like to have the good job. Like I didn't want to be the lowly driver. I wanted to be the guy who was throwing hay bales on, onto the tractor. Like I idolized these guys, like to the point where I remember one time specifically, I was wearing like a new pair of blue jeans. Probably not actually, because I wouldn't have been doing farm work. Anyway, I had this like a nice pair of work jeans on, and I noticed that a couple of the guys throwing hay had, had like torn, torn their knees or their jeans. And I was like, that's, that's it. That's where it's at. And so like during lunch break or whatever, I ran up to my room and got a pair of scissors and like cut, cut the knee of my jean and came back out and was like, hey, you know. I'm like, you guys, and so clearly, like, theirs is, are naturally ripped, and mine is this very distinct, like, one straight line, and I just remember my dad looking at me and kind of like, oh, man, like, one day, one day you might grow out of this. Um, but then one day, I got to be the guy, I think my, my, my younger sister got to drive the tractor, and I was, I graduated. I graduated to bale thrower, and you know what I learned? That's a really hard job. <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible job. It is so tiring. Uh, you get so hot so fast, and the hay just it, it gets everywhere. And, and so, like, I wanted a new job. And so, like, I wanted, when I was in middle school, I wanted the next job. When I was in high school, I wanted the next job. Um, and, and, and this is true for jobs, isn't it? Like, we just, there's always something that makes us go, I want more. So, so in high school, I had to pay for a fair bit of college. And so in high school, I delivered pizzas. I made trophies. That was a cool job, except I learned people give away awards for really, really strange stuff. Um, I was a janitor. I worked at American Eagle Outfitters. Remember American Eagle? Those of you who, who were in high school in the late 90s, it wasn't quite as good as Abercrombie and Fitch, but it was like the B-level. They had the same hemp necklaces. Um, I sold those. Uh, I could probably get you still a pretty good deal on one of those if you need it. Uh, and then we sold, I, I raised and sold animals through 4-H to pay for college. And, and so I, I did a lot of stuff in high school. You know what was true as I look back on each job, though? There's four things that are true. One, none of those jobs was perfect. Can you resonate with that? None of those jobs, even as a high school kid, none of those was perfect. Each job added some value to, to people. Like, I, I brought people their dinner. I sold them their hemp necklaces. Where else were they going to get hemp necklaces for a lower price than Abercrombie had? Like, I added value to people's lives uh, through all these jobs. Um, third, each job had a boss. And fourth, they all involve some sort of hard work. Different types of hard work, but, but hard work, right? And, and, and those are some of the same things. The fact, that, the fact that none of them were perfect, each job had a boss, all, all had some sort of hard work. Those are, those are the things that made, made some of those jobs hard. And every single job, no matter what it is, has something hard to it, yes? 
I know zero people who, know, who love everything about their job. Zero people love everything about their job. And so the, the, the common theme of why people don't love their job is either my boss is hard, the work is either too hard or too boring, so we go kind of split on that, I can't do it or I'm just bored by it, or I feel undervalued. Right? Those are common themes that folks hear in their jobs. Um, this spring, the City Church is walking through the, the biblical letter of Ephesians, and in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, we saw before Christmas, um, Paul lays the foundations of worship uh, and says that Jesus and, and, and His authority and, and the good news of His perfect life and sacrificial death um, and, and resurrection to conquer sins and ascension changes our life and makes us new. It gives us a whole new identity. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul lines out for us, what does it look like to live out that good news? What's it look like to walk in worship? In other words, how does Jesus literally impact every bit of our life, every situation we face? How, how, how does a spirit-filled life look in the context of every relationship? And in these last couple of weeks, we've been looking at, at, at kind of the relationships in the first century Roman household. So, so Paul calls his original readers to walk in worship toward the people they're in most close relationship with. And so two weeks ago, it was, what does it look like to live out the gospel as wives to husbands and husbands to wives? Last week, what does it look like for children and parents to live out the gospel, the good news, to walk in worship toward each other? And then today we come to this passage on slaves and masters. And you may think, well, it's 21st century in the U.S., we don't have slaves and masters. But, but I want us to walk through this text through the lens of a first century Roman culture, because I think God has some very applicable truths for us in 21st century America. And so we're going to stop at three points. I'm going to be on the slide here in a sec. We're going to stop at three points in these verses to arrive at one theme. Um, the first stop is God's heart for slaves. Second, um, God's calling for work. And then third, God's power for worship. And, and here's where all three of those are going to lead us. If you get nothing else from today, you can turn off after this one, two sentences. No matter who you are or what you do, Jesus is your greatest servant and greatest master, your greatest slave and your greatest master. And this frees you to serve all people in all of life. Let me say that again. No matter who you are or what you do, Jesus is your greatest servant and greatest master. And because that's true, we are now free to serve all people in all of life. So let's read in Ephesians 6. We're going to start in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not unto man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same with them, your servants, your slaves. Do the same with them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Yeah, God, we do thank you for your word, even, the, even when it says hard things. Um, I thank you that you give us your spirit and your wisdom, and that you give us your word, uh, and that what was written to literal slaves in the first century has application for us um, in the 21st. Um, thank you that your word is, is timeless and is living and active. Would you lead us to understand it well? Would you teach us today? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so to dive in, the first stop we're going to make is the very first word of these verses. What's the first word of Ephesians 6, 5 in your Bibles? It says bond servants in some, it says servants in others. Any other translations? 
Slaves, that's what mine says. Uh, we're going to use that term today. It's, it's the most literal, um, and, and it also is kind of the most extreme of those three words, and so I want to camp out on it um, today. We can't go further and teach these verses in, in the United States in 2020, where racial tension and trafficking and the history of slavery still rings true, and, and frankly, if we can be honest, where the capital C church has largely tried to downplay or ignore or avoid this topic, we can't, we can't talk about these verses with without explaining God's heart and the biblical teaching towards slaves. We just have to address it. Uh, and, and you may have heard in churches that, that slavery in first century Rome was different than slavery in, uh, in the United States. And, and that may be true, but, but I don't think that gives us license to just gloss over it or pretend like we can, we can avoid it. Uh, in fact, there were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire at the time that Paul wrote. In the Old Testament, before uh, Jesus, there were millions of slaves in and among the people of Israel. And in fact, God's people, Israel, were in fact slaves in the country of Egypt. We see that in, in Exodus. And there's one key difference in slavery in the Bible versus slavery in the U.S. Um, in, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's this. Um, in, in the Bible times, slavery was not primarily a racial reality like it was in the States. And that's the greatest difference. But, but still, rarely did someone choose to become a slave. There were times when folks volunteered themselves um, to be someone's servant, this kind of stuff, but, but it was more rare. Largely, you became a slave in the times of the Bible um, through one of two ways. One was as punishment for a crime or until you paid off a debt. You can see this if you read through Leviticus. Some of you are doing like reading through the Bible in a year, and so you've seen this recently in the Old Testament, that if you harm somebody, couldn't pay them back, you could work off your debt. And so it'd be a little bit like an indentured servant for a time to pay off your debt or your parents' debt or family members' debt. The first way one would become a slave. The second way one would become a slave is to be conquered by a foreign nation, and then largely you were kind of forced into slavery, but even then it was more, more commonly for a certain amount of years, not for the rest of your life. And so slavery was not race-based, but there were similar ways that people became slaves in the Roman Empire as in U.S. history. As a further similarity, uh, according to Old Testament law, according to Roman law, um, the owner, or, or the master in Ephesians 6, had complete authority over his slaves. And so, as you might expect, just like U.S. history, um, slaves in Roman times, slaves in Old Testament times, they were treated in a whole variety of, 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 of different ways. Some slaves were valued and were essentially uh, uh, like family. Others were treated poorly, terribly. So these are historical realities. There's historic similarities between U.S. slavery and, and slavery in the scriptures, the, the Bible times. But there's a couple other key differences between slaves in the Old Testament in Roman society and slaves in the U.S. First, in the Old Testament and Roman society, slaves had rights. Second, they had a means for release. So on one hand, slaves could own their own land. They could, they could buy their freedom. Slaves could even, in the sl slavery in, in, in the scriptural times, slaves in the Bible times could take their unjust masters to court. That's something that did not exist hardly ever, if ever, in, in the time of U.S. slavery. Slaves in the scriptural times could even own their own slaves, which is like a mind-blowing concept to me. But they had rights, is all I'm trying to say. And on the other hand, when their debt was paid, or if they worked hard enough, or when they reached a certain age, 
or, and I want you to tuck this away, in the Old Testament, at least once every 50 years, the, 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 the Old Testament law instilled what was called the year of Jubilee, or the year of the Lord's favor, when all slaves were set free. And so when they paid their debt, or when they worked hard enough, or when they reached a certain age, or when that year of Jubilee came around, the law mandated that slaves were to be set free. And so according to some statistics, the average length of slavery or indentured servanthood in the, in the times of the Bible, which is admittedly thousands of years, but, but the average times of, of slavery or indentured servanthood was, was 10 to 15 years. I'm not saying any of this to say it was right for people to own people. I'm just explaining that there were differences in when we think of slavery and what the scriptures, cultures saw it as. But, but here's the point. Both Roman slavery and U.S. slavery is a part of history, and, and it's important to know the differences. Why does all this matter for, for Ephesians 6? Um, I think there's two reasons. First, we simply have to know slavery is a fact of first century Roman culture. We can't downplay that. We can't ignore it faithfully. We can't pretend it didn't exist. If, if, we, if we try to downplay it or ignore it, I think we miss vital lessons and even some warnings from the past and there's a potential that history would repeat itself. The second reason that the, the concept of slavery matters for this passage today is harder. We must admit not only does slavery exist in the first century culture, we have to exist, it, it existed within the first century church. We have to admit and acknowledge that slavery existed within the first century church. Who is Ephesians written to? It's written to Christians. It's written to the, the church at Ephesus. That's why it matters for these verses. Because as we saw, we read the text a minute ago, Paul's command was not, masters, release your slaves. His command was not, slaves, run away. So Paul acknowledges, acknowledges the, these historical facts that slavery existed in Rome and in the church, and he did not command slaves release. And, and so, so it often leads folks to the question, well, did Paul or God or the Bible, did, did Paul or God or the Bible endorse slavery? And there's some of us in the room, and there's several throughout history that can't even think beyond this first word of these verses without knowing, did God endorse slavery? Did Paul, did the scriptures endorse slavery? And sadly, today's verses, as well as similar verses in like Colossians and 1 Peter, I think, there's been verses like this that have been used by people throughout history to justify the ownership and mistreatment of slaves. Even in the U.S., even some well-known theologians in the U.S., have interpreted these verses to use them as a justification for slavery. And it doesn't help, there, there's an entire book of the Bible called Philemon, where Paul convinces a runaway slave to return to his master. Though if you read it, he exhorts the master to treat the slave as a brother, not as a slave. Even still, even though people have misused it, even though there's, there's a book of the Bible that, that encourages that, we can say with confidence in church, I can tell you with confidence, no. Paul, the scriptures, our Lord does not endorse slavery. In fact, we can go a step further and say that slavery fit in, into this broader category of people that consistently God fought for throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what is God's heart for slaves? It's the same as God's heart for other peoples that he consistently fought for. God had a heart for the helpless God had a heart for the downtrodden. God had a heart for people who couldn't fight for themselves. 
Let's say that again and make it present tense. God has a heart for the helpless. God has a heart for the downtrodden. God has a heart for people who can't fight for themselves. And and because that's God's heart, he commands the same for his people. And so in Leviticus, you see the commands not not for farmers to, to, to harvest to the edge of the field, but rather to let the needy and the sojourner come and glean. In James, uh, Jesus' own brother defines true religion as loving the widows and the orphans. Jesus himself talked to women directly and, and, and valued that, and, and valued talking to Samaritans, who Jews were not supposed to talk to, and invited children to himself, even when we see this with his own apostles. His own apostles were trying to keep the children away, and Jesus says, no, no, no. Bring to me those, bring to me those who are helpless, downtrodden, who most of society says no to. Even in Ephesians, have you noticed this? All three relationships that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5 and 6, first he talks directly to those who are supposedly less than, supposedly, quote, less than in Roman culture. He talks to wives, he talks to children, he talks to slaves. That's unheard of. If you wanted to do something, if you wanted to say something to a wife in the culture, you talk to the husband, he talked to the wife. To the child, you talk to the parent, and they talk to the child. To the slave, you did not talk to the slave, you talked to the master. Paul talks directly to them, and more than that, he talks to them first. He talks to the, quote, less than before he talks to the, quote, greater than. The people that society would have seen as better, higher, more important, the husband, the parent, the master. Like, I, I don't think there's a picture I could paint you to help us comprehend what a huge deal it is that Paul talked directly to the less than and did so first. We, we cannot comprehend how countercultural that was. It was, it was revolution. It was beyond revolutionary. The biblical theme from Old Testament to New Testament in every book, in every interaction, is that God values the people that culture says are less than. And that's a beautiful truth, is it not? God consistently values people that our cultures say are less than. That's the broad category that slaves fit into. Specifically regarding slavery, the greatest foreshadow of Jesus' redemption was the fact that God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. We already said this, the Old Testament law put limits on, time limits on slavery. Later in history, the Old Testament describes the decline of King Solomon. Some of you know the story, King, king Solomon went from the, the greatest and wisest king to, to being depressed and leading a divided kingdom that was eventually overtaken by other kingdoms. And many theologians, and I'm not a theologian, but I happen to believe this as well, many theologians believe that the forced slavery of foreigners is one of the main reasons for Israel's decline and division. Through history, God's people, Old Testament Israel, New Testament believers, and Christians across the world ever since, Christians have consistently been at the forefront of abolitionist movements, to which we say yes. Yes. It's impossible for modern forms of slavery, sex work, continued racial injustice, child trafficking, exploitation, sojourners and aliens, even many forms of debt. It's it's impossible for modern forms of slavery like that to be compatible with the heart of God. And so let's continue 
as God's people to display the heart of God and fight for those that our culture says is less than. Yes? So we're dwelling on this theme because it's a big deal. It's a big deal today. It's a big deal in Paul's day. There's a lot of of other examples that I could give you of God's heart for slaves and for the downtrodden and forgotten and the the less than, but I'll give you one last one, and maybe this is the the greatest one. Um, Luke 4 is going to be, a a passage from Luke 4 is going to be on the screen behind me. You can turn there if you want, but you can also just look past me. Um, Luke 4 is Jesus' own first public sermon. A lot of theologians, a lot of Bible scholars consider it Jesus' ministry purpose statement. Here's what Jesus says. He gets up, he unfolds the scroll, and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to whom? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim what? Liberty or freedom to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set free or to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the 50-year the jubilee. To proclaim the release, the the year of the Lord's favor is the jubilee that we see in Leviticus, that all slaves are set free. This is Jesus' purpose statement. He's quoting Isaiah 61, where these are the things that are the promised work and promised goals of Israel's coming Messiah. Jesus says, that's me. That's what I'm coming for. And he does it spiritually, yes. But he also did it literally. Literally. Physically, emotionally, we see this in the Gospels. He sets free those who are oppressed. Is this good news today, church? Wow, that was pretty silent. Is this good news? I think it's great news. So we're one word into today's text. (laughs) There's lots more we could say on this, but we've got to move on. Here's the bottom line. Did slavery exist in the Old Testament and New Testament even among God's people? Yes. But do Paul and God and the Bible endorse slavery? No. So so then why does Paul address slaves in this way? Here's what I would say. In verses like this, there are are some places where Paul charges charges folks to go try to to change overt society and laws. That's, That's not what he's doing here. In verses like this, Paul and God and the Scriptures are not calling Christians to fight the emperor and to change the law. Many could not do that even if they wanted to. Rather, in verses like this, in the first days of Christianity, Paul and God in the Scriptures are simply writing to help all Christians in any position in life navigate their daily reality in the society they live in, in the law that they already exist under. That's what he's doing. Across Rome, what had happened is that both slaves and masters had become Christians. Some of those slaves and masters were in the same room. We have to remember this. Like, they didn't have huge churches. This was the entire church at Ephesus. It was small. It was probably a house church. So slaves and masters are sitting in the same room together. So Paul's focus is not kind of lofty and philosophical and, and societal. His focus in this verse is boots on the ground, real-time situation within your daily life and within your, quote, working relationship and within this local church. How can that slave and that master live out the gospel even toward each other? That's Paul's goal. What's it look like today? And with that as our lens, 
knowing God's heart towards slaves. The rest of these verses are frankly pretty straightforward. That's why we can spend so much time on, on this one word. Um, the rest of these verses are pretty straightforward. We see God's call for work and God's power for worship. So that takes us to our next stop, and, and some of the verses will be up on the screen. So we'll be a lot faster with this one. What is God's call for work? We can summarize it like this. God deeply values every person and role and position, and so should we. What's God's call for work? God deeply values every person and role and position, and so should God's people. If I can be honest, I struggled this week, these last couple of weeks that I was prepping this text, because most of the times this text is preached or studied in a way that kind of relegates first century slavery, that negates, excuse me, that negates first century slavery and simply says, look, this is how God wants you to work. Let's pretend like slavery is not in there. This is how God wants Christian employees to treat their bosses, and this is how God wants Christian bosses to treat their employees. And, and I've struggled with that. It's, it seems trite. It seems kind of sanitized. It seems like we're negating something that's really going on there. But then as I read and processed and prayed, two things really struck me as I dug in. And the first is this. If these verses are true for even slaves and masters who we can say are at the, I don't think this is stretching too far, they're at the extremes of the work relationship spectrum, right? If this is true for even slaves and masters who are at the extremes of the work relationship spectrum, how much more should the truths in these verses apply to any of us, which is to say all of us, who exist somewhere between those two extremes? The final words in verse 9 are key. There is no partiality with God. There's no partiality. There's no favoritism with God. God values no person less than any other person. God values no job less than any other job. We've already said this. All work is hard. This, on, on social media this week, I, I just put out like a, hey, fill in the blank. If you had to think of your work right now, one word association, my job is what? And it was amazing to see the responses. There were some good responses. My work is rewarding. My work is amazing. My work is fun. That's awesome. But also people responded and said, my work feels out of step. My work is exhausting. One said, my work is invalidating. And, and if we were to go around the room and do this exercise, we'd say, yeah, all that's true. Some of you go, yeah, it's great. Some of you go, I don't know if I can do it tomorrow. Work's hard. Add to that, every society in all of history has elevated some people and some jobs above others, yes? There's some jobs that you go, yeah, that's what I'm going for. There's some jobs you go, no. Every society has done that, but there is no partiality with God. There is worth in whatever you do in the medical field. There is worth in whatever you do in the governmental legal fields. There is work in, there's worth in ministry. There is worth in education, whether it's public, private, or home. There is worth in diaper changing. There's worth in farming and agriculture. There's worth in construction and janitorial. There's worth in blue and white collar jobs and in chores kids that you go do. There's worth in the, in the chores you do. There's worth in that. These verses are teaching even, even the menial tasks that were assigned to slaves are worthy before God, our true master. Not only worthy, they're as worthy as whatever, whatever it is that the most successful people in our society do, 
whatever the most successful woman, whatever the most successful man in our country does, whatever menial task is being done is as worthy on some level as that. So, so like... Uh, Jeff, Jeff Bezos, is he the most rich guy in the world right now? So, like he, so Amazon provides jobs to some 750,000 people. But if someone doesn't clean a toilet in one of those factories, then sickness and death can win the day. Right? Like very different jobs on a, on a, on a human level, very different levels of worth. But both are needed. Both, I mean, God, we're in a moment in, in our global society right now where if, if people cleaning things has never been valued, like this coronavirus thing, you've heard of it, right? Um, if, if there's a moment in our globe where cleaning things has, ne- has been valued more, like this is it, right? I mean, how many emails have, have we gotten that say, wash your hands? How many emails, like tables and toilets and stuff being wiped down right now, like those are the people at the forefront of keeping the globe from going into chaos right now. Got an email from American Airlines, some of you did too, said, hey, we're instituting new cleaning policies, and between every flight, we're wiping down all the hard services, including tray tables and armrests. It's like, I wish you would do that already, that'd be great, but I'm really glad you are now, because those are the people, they're the folks you walk by on the plane as you get off, and, and they don't make eye contact with you. They're on the forefront of this fight right now. There's worth in even the most menial thing. Hear me, every job matters. And so, look at me, your job matters. Whatever you do with your time, whatever you do with your day, your job matters. You need an application from today? This this is the first. What you do is important. What you do is important. You add value to this world. You are important. Do you believe that? You're important. Again, Paul's not fighting society. He's not fighting the the laws of the time. He's simply helping Christians live as Christians in everyday life and relationships. If slaves, to quote some of these verses, can work with a sincere heart, if slaves, rather than people please, can render service to their masters with goodwill, as unto the Lord. If slaves can do that, how much more can we toward any boss, any job? If masters are called to do the same for slaves, to work with a sincere heart, to render service as goodwill, as unto the Lord, if if masters are called to do the same for slaves, how much more is that true for any worker in any profession toward their employees, toward their servants? I taught persuasive speaking at TCU for a little while. Uh, uh, Speech theory would call this an argument from a logical extreme. What Paul's saying is, if this is true for folks at the ends of the spectrum, how much more is this true for any Christian between those two ends? Here's the second thing that struck me. Test this with me. But every industry I know still has some sort of negative social pecking order. Do you agree with that? Every industry that I know still has some sort of negative social pecking order. I'm not talking about job descriptions or org charts. Those those are fine. What I'm talking about is the negative way that people treat different, quote, levels of work and different levels of workers. Is this true in your profession? We don't use the the overt titles anymore of slave and master, zero to hero kind of thing. We don't use that anymore. But people in lots of jobs are still treated as if they're way less than or way greater than one another. Is that true? 
Like, like here's, if, if you don't believe me, go, go watch. If you go to lunch today, watch how people in a restaurant speak to the restaurant manager versus how they speak to their waiter versus how they speak to their busboy. It's a clear social negative pecking order. Or watch how those managers speak to the wait, wait staff versus the busboy. See if the busboy is even allowed to address the manager. Have you ever seen how some doctors treat their nurses? Not all. Some doctors in the room. But have you ever seen how some doctors treat their nurses? Have you ever heard how some bosses speak to their assistants? Have you seen this? Am I wrong on this? There's a modern class system that still exists more than we give it credit for. And the, there's different treatment for people in different classes. That was true in first century Rome. That's true in 21st century America. And Ephesians 6 says no. No. If even slaves could honor their masters with fear and trembling, or in other words, with awe and respect, and could fulfill their work with dignity, and could see their work as for Christ, not for man, how much more can we pursue the same goals in any easier job or any easier relationship? Again, Paul's writing revolutionary things, even more revolutionary. If masters are called to treat their slaves with honor and with awe and respect too, this is in, in, in verse nine, I don't know if, yeah, verse nine's up there. Um, that's what the Greek says in verse 9, where it says, masters, do the same for them. He's saying, seek their welfare. Seek the welfare of your slaves? Yes. Seek the welfare of your slaves. Respect your slaves? Yes. And stop threatening them. Y'all, this is unheard of in any slavery context. But if Paul can call masters to a revolutionary treatment of slaves with honor and respect and welfare, how much more can we honor people with a, quote, lesser role than we see? So make it practical. If you're a boss of anybody, or frankly, even if you're just a customer of anywhere, what would it look like to treat an employee or a wait staff or whatever as if Jesus was their boss or customer? You ever thought of that? What would it look like if you have any authority over anyone to treat them as if Jesus was their authority? If you're an employee or a wait staff or whatever, what would it look like to treat a boss or customer as if Jesus was their employee or wait staff? And, and this is kind of the second tangible application. Whatever work role we're in, or whatever customer, uh, customer, servant, whatever role we're in, whether poor, waiter, janitor, rich, boss, CEO, anywhere between, what would it look like if Christians saw humans as humans? Saw people as people, saw persons as persons rather than titles and class ranks. What if we saw them with the same value as God has placed on them? I mean, these are easy principles in theory, right? Like we hear themes like this all the time. Of course work matters. Of course people are equal. Sure, sure. But man, I think we miss this way more than we know. I think we miss this way more than we admit. Paul and God and the Bible fight for work to be valued and each worker to be valued. Why? Because God created work. 
He did so in Genesis before the fall of man. God created work, and more so, God created every worker as humans, as people, as persons, which means they're created in God's image for God's glory, and they have intrinsic worth in them because they're God's daughters or sons in creation. That leads to our third and kind of final stop for today. If we realize or admit how deeply we miss this in our hearts, if we, if we realize and admit how hard it is in our minds to truly see people as people and to treat them with the equal worth and value that God gives to them, no matter their race or job or title or rank or whatever else, if we're willing to let ourselves go there, it leads us to realize our need for Jesus' work in us. Tim Keller's pastor and author summarizes these verses by saying, your career is not your real career, and your boss is not your real boss. For some of you, that's like immediately relieving. For some of you, that's all you need to hear today. <laughs> your career is not your real career. Your boss is not your real boss. Here's what he means. We are servants to a greater master. If, if, if we are Christians, then there is a relationship we have, even with our boss or employee, even with masters and servants, that goes beyond the working relationship. There's a greater relationship we have with those people. Thankfully, the very words of these verses, we're just going to kind of spot check some of them, but the very words of these verses remind us that our right view of God is the only thing that can lead us to a right view of all people and all jobs. What is it that gives us the power to worship? It's God the Spirit. We're talking about walking in worship. We've talked about God's heart for slaves, God's uh, calling for work. Now we're talking about the, the, the power that we have for worship, and it's not something we can conjure up. It's God's Spirit in us. What is it, church, that enables us to, quote, obey our masters with sincere hearts or to do the will of God with good will as to the Lord? What is it? It's the fact in verse 7 that everything in life is worship to God before it is obedience and pleasing to people. Everything is worship to God. Other humans are just beneficiaries of it. Whether we work, whether we're noticed, whether we're valued, God knows and God values you. And that's true no matter what your title, no matter what your position in life. What is it that frees us to, quote, do good to others? It's a promise in verse 8 that any good that we do will be repaid to us, whether in this life or the next, by a greater master than any master this world could ever put in front of us. There's even, I think, a little bit of irony and, and, and humor in this, in this passage. What is it that gives us hope when our master or boss is hard? Verse 5 says and reminds us that she or he is only our earthly master, which means what? That relationship's not eternal. J just like in the Old Testament, that, that service is temporary. You will quit or you will die, or they will die, or they will fire you. Either way, one day you're going to be free. Like the, the year of Jubilee and the Lord's favor <laughs> is at hand. What's our motive for treating people that our culture says are less than well? What's our motive for treating those people well? Verse 9 tells us everyone, slave, master, free, in bondage, everyone has one master, one true master, one eternal master who is the king of the universe, who's the true master. 
of all earthly masters and all earthly slaves and all earthly bosses and all earthly employees. And if we can go back a couple weeks, there's one good king and master who's also the master of every wife and every husband and every child and every parent. Any position, any relationship we have in this life is a gift from God to steward well for God. In any position, in any role we have in this life is designed to serve people. Any position, any role we have in this life is a chance for us to display the very heart of God for anyone who calls themselves a Christian. What power does God give us to live this way, to worship in every relationship, to worship in every job? The, the power is found in the verse that started this whole three-week section, four-week section we've been in. If you want to flip back a page, verse 18 of chapter 5 says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And it's when we're filled with the Spirit that the next verses can be true. It's when we're filled with the Spirit we can address one another. Again, masters and slaves didn't address one another. There's a hierarchy in husbands and wives and children and parents. When the Spirit fills us, we can address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart. It's when we're filled with the Spirit that we give thanks always and for everything. Again, thinking even of positions that God gives us in life. We can thank God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's when we're filled with the Spirit that we can, what's verse 21 say? We can submit to one another. Slaves to masters, masters to slaves, treat each other with respect, fight for each other's welfare, treat each other like humans, no matter your social position, out of reverence for Christ. There's many things in life that try to be our masters. There's lots of lies, there's lots of social perspectives, there's lots of expectation, there's lots of things that live in our hearts and our minds. There's a lot of things that try to shape our view of, of our own job, of our own bosses, of slavery even, of our employees, of our roles. But the truth of God, and this is our kind of final application for today, is this, when, when your boss thinks you do a bad job, Jesus is a better master. And also, when your boss thinks you're doing a great job, Jesus is still a better master. We only have the ability to love and value people like God without partiality, and, and whether culture says they're lower than or higher than us, we only have the ability to love and value people like God because Jesus, who was the greatest master in the universe, became the greatest slave in the universe and did so to serve every human on earth. We get this, right? Jesus, Jesus perfectly and sinlessly loved and valued the rich and righteous people in his day and the poor and forgotten people in his day. He came as one under the law to free and redeem those of us who are under the law. Jesus knew the pain that so many slaves in history have faced. He was beaten and he was mocked and he was killed. And in his suffering and death, he perfectly served both God the Father and you and me. More than that, Jesus was the greatest master, still is the greatest master, whose own sacrifice freed us from slavery to bad masters, 
the masters of sin and death, and he promises eternal freedom and life lived in a perfect relationship with the best master and good king of the universe. More than that, Jesus continues to serve us. Do you know this? He sent the Spirit to fill and empower us to worship in all of life, and He is currently sitting at the right hand of God, praying to God on your behalf. And as the perfect King who will fulfill that mission statement in Luke 4, Jesus will come again and fully liberate all people from any form of captivity and oppression. And that includes your job and title and earthly masters And when he does, he will bring us into true, everlasting year of jubilee, years of the Lord's favor, eternity in good relationship with him. Is that good news? No matter what you are, no matter what you do, church, Jesus is your greatest slave and your greatest master, your greatest servant, excuse me, and your greatest master. And because that's true, we're free to serve all people with all of our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, there's so much about this text that is hard, incomprehensible. The fact that you, (laughs) the most worthy, the only worthy one, the only perfect one, would come and serve us in our utter imperfection and unworthiness is is mind-blowing. The fact that you send your spirit to, to live this utterly countercultural way of life, even in our homes, even in our work relationships, even with our kids, even with our spouses, um, is, is impossible without you. So I thank you that the same spirit that dwelled in Jesus and the same spirit that raised him from the dead, he lives in us. And is the only power we have to this. Thank you for doing what we can't do, God. Would you help us, Spirit? Jesus, would, you, would, the, would the hope of your glory, would Christ in us be the only hope of, of, of our glory, Lord? Would, would, would the Spirit win over all the other things that try to master us this week? It's in Jesus' name, amen.